It's a great, great privilege to be able to teach you the Word of God. I am an unworthy person uh, of this task, but uh, I get, I'm, but I'm thankful. <laughs> and it's uh, a joy to be able to stand up before you and just teach the Word of God. I pray this morning that these two verses have the kind of impact that you've had on my heart throughout the week and even greater. Just two verses, look at them, will you? Romans 10, 9 and 10. But if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Pray with me here. Lord, we, we need your spirit to help us to know this text and to really receive it. And I pray, Lord, Lord, keep this from being so familiar that we just gloss over it and say, yeah, yeah, I know that. Speak to us afresh this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come to two very familiar verses. Incredibly familiar. Our study this morning here is verses 9 and 10. But let me tell you, it's the rub of the church today, beloved. There are lots of people who think they become Christians, that they have become Christians, or who, who are told that they become Christians when they're not. This is a rub. These two verses really, I believe, bring us teaching that the church today, by and large, is intolerable of. You could call this a, a message on how to have faith in Christ, or how to receive salvation, or how does one become a Christian. And why I say it's a rub, and why I say the church is largely intolerable, is because if we took these two verses truly for what they say, then they are against the message that the church by and large is preaching today regarding how a person really does become a Christian. Now just so you know, historically, that's been a struggle for every generation in the church. We're not a special one that way. I mean, that, and that makes sense to me. As I was considering, I mean, the church throughout the ages has struggled with this very thing. It seems it's been the battle for the true church, for true Christians, to fight for what it truly means to be a Christian and to help people to see that, not only your own children, but people all around, to help them see what it truly means to be a Christian. And I think this is what is, why it is so difficult to stretch out and we want to stretch out across from church to church and we want there to be fellowship and we want there to be communion, but this is the reason why it's difficult is because of how we define what it means to become a Christian. How that happens. It's a struggle and it's a ploy by Satan. You know, he wants to get the definition of what it means to be a, to, to become a Christian and how to, be, how to become one. He wants to get that all blurry and distorted. Wouldn't you agree? I mean... It's not even so much, can I, Satan might say, can I get the truth out of the church? That's not so much the ploy. The ploy is, how can I get that thing tweaked? How can I get that thing to be distorted? How can I get that thing to just kind of, in fact, if I can do it at the level of a person thinking that they're a Christian, that they become one, but not really being one, then I've done it. I've done it. He's always right there next to the church ready to do that. And that's why I believe in the parable of the soils, the gospel message is planted. And what happens next? What, what's the very first thing that happens? What does it say? Satan comes and snatches it away. But who does he snatch it from? Listen. From shallow, superficial-hearted people. That's whom he snatches it away from. 
And so that tells me that our, one of the works of the church today is to make sure that we don't have those shallow, superficial-hearted people. To make sure that we truly have received the Word. Truly have received that Gospel message. Now just to make sure you're following, we have to get ourselves into this passage and let the context kind of dictate things, don't we? In fact, I could give you Jesus' words himself to set up what chapters 9 and 10 have been seeing here. We've been studying Romans 9, 10, and 11 because it's one section. And now we're into chapter 10, so you can say we're right in the middle of this. But listen to what the Messiah of Israel said in Luke 13, 24, when he said this, Strive to enter through the narrow door. Now he said that to the leaders of Israel. Why? Why did he say that to the leaders of Israel? Strive to enter through the narrow door. Because they were trying to get into heaven through the what? The wide door, weren't they? You, you know what the wide door is? It's the door of human effort. That's the wide door. It's the door of saying, I want to do it my way. I'm a Christian my way. I go to church my way. I do things my way. That's the door of, that's the wide door of human effort. Jesus said, someday you're going to call on the Lord to open up the door to us. And the Lord will tell you, and he's telling this to Israel, depart from me, all you evildoers. Unbelievable. And you, you, you bet that they were just sitting there going, aghast. Us? Israel? I mean, we're the real Israel. We're the leaders. I mean, we're the, we're the Pharisees. You're saying we're the evildoers? And they must have thought to themselves, if we're the evildoers, what's that make the Gentiles then? Because of course we're greater than the Gentiles. Huh. Might that be your problem? You know? And then he said this in verse 28. Luke 13, 28. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, a Jew, Isaac, another Jew, and Jacob, another Jew, and all the prophets, more Jews, in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being, what, thrown out. You, look at these people, you who have such knowledge, you who have such great religious activity, you who are amazing in your, in your uh, fervor, in your passion, in your zeal, you who, whose, whose days and whose weeks are littered with all kinds of religious, you know, stuff. You're going to be thrown out. In other words, all that's left for you, Israel, is judgment. Why? Where did this judgment come from? Well, that's our study, chapters 9 and 10. So hopefully I've set that up for you. And it's also 11, chapter 11, too. And so here it is. Here's Israel. And Israel was the apple of God's eye of the Old Testament. And God sends the, the, the gospel in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus says to them, Teach what I have taught you. And the apostles teach Israel the gospel. And what does she do? She rejects it. And the question has to be, why is she rejecting this? I mean, is, is this message a good one when God's chosen people reject Israel, re reject it? Can it be a good one? And Paul's defending that very thing. Paul is defending the fact that not only is this a good message, it's the only message, see. And that's very exclusive, isn't it? It's very narrow. But look, I'm not making Christianity narrow. Jesus did. When he said, strive to enter into the narrow door. It is narrow. And it excludes 
whole religions and even denominations that don't preach the gospel. So chapter 9 is the first part of that explanation. Paul is explaining why it is that Israel is here rejected. He says in chapter 9, well, God planned it that way. You say, well, that's really hard. Is that all there is to it? Man, that makes... So, so it's God's fault. That we didn't believe. No, chapter 10, the second part. Well, the second part, Israel, it's also your fault. God planned it that way, but you're still held responsible. It's your fault. Why? Because you didn't believe. She willfully rejected. She was ignorant. And here she is. She had loads of information, right? She knew better. And so chapter 9 is really God's side of how things work. And chapter 10 is, is the side of, is the human side, you could say. And I like that because it helps us in, in understanding salvation, doesn't it? There really are these two sides. There's the side of, of God and, and what He does and how He works. And then there's our side from the standpoint that you must believe, right? You gotta believe. You're not gonna wake up out of bed one day and go, I don't know why, just believe. It's not going to happen that way. I don't know why. I'm just a Christian. Well, I went to bed a pagan and I woke up a Christian and I'm not sure what happened, but I, you know, here I am, right? It doesn't work that way. You must believe. There must be a movement of your will. So here is Israel... And she's rejected. She, her will has, has said no to God. This is her response. And, and by the way, that's always how it works. God's will and man's response. God is always sovereign over man's will. Let's never forget that. But here is Israel and she's ignorant. That's what we see there in verse 3. For not knowing. For being ignorant is literally what the word says in the Greek. Agnaeo. Where we get the word agnostic from. It's to be ignorant. To say, I just, don't, I just didn't know enough. Here is Israel, just not knowing enough. And yet she knew everything from a, another standpoint. So what was Israel ignorant of? What was she ignorant of? She, well, she didn't understand six crucial truths. And they become sort of blind spots. And this is what our outline has been, haven't they? They didn't understand righteousness. Verses 1 to 3. They just did not understand how holy God was. How righteous He was. God's righteousness. Secondly, she didn't understand Christ. Verse 4. She didn't know what to do with his cross. Didn't know what to make of his life. Now look at verse 4. The point of verse 4 is really this. Israel didn't get righteousness. Lowered God. And she, and she elevated her own righteousness. And so here comes Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He does something. What? What does it say there in verse 4? For Christ is the finality of the law. That's what the word means right there. The end. It says the end of the law. He's the finality of the law. Not just the law, but you got to keep going. For righteousness. In other words, there's a law for righteousness. And there's faith for righteousness. And what Jesus did is he came to end the law for righteousness. To put an end to that in our own lives. Now what that, that tells me something, by the way, beloved. That tells me that from day one, our system is law for righteousness, isn't it? That's what our system is. We didn't have to be taught that. We do that all the time. Take a look at your kids. They live by a sense of justice, don't they? It's my turn. See? Well, you, you had your turn. It's now my turn. You didn't have to teach them that, did you? Did you have to teach them that, let's see, there are four of us kids, and three of, three of the kids got this. Well, I need to get that too, don't I? Because that would not be very fair. See, we all live with this sense of justice and we're born with it and it's engraved. It's in our, it's woven into the fabric of, of our lives and who we are.
Jesus came to end that. Why? Because as long as you keep living that way, you'll never make it. I love the the uh, the illustration that I think it was R.C. Sproul gave of of uh, the guy climbing the ladder up, supposedly, you know, up into heaven, and it just kept going and going and going. Right? Where was it going? It was. Well, he wasn't. He wasn't getting anywhere. He wasn't making it. Right? Thinking that he was just going to be passing people up all the way up there. Human effort. That's what he came to end. He came... It's the system that tries to prove righteousness through self-efforts. It's trying to get, to get it through law obedience. So they didn't get righteousness. They didn't get how holy God was. So they sought to establish their own righteousness. They didn't get Christ and what he came for, so they kept going away from him. And then a third thing that they didn't get, and this is where we're at in our outline, they didn't get faith. They didn't get what place faith had in relation to God. You ever do that? You're looking at your house and you're kind of cleaning up and you stumble across something and you go, huh, I don't need that. You toss it and throw it away. Later on, you come to realize, oh, whoops, I did need that thing that I just threw away, right? Have you ever done that? This is what Israel did. So, well, all right, you know, uh, law, we like law, and we're just going to do all of it our way and human efforts, and here's faith. Now, I don't need that. Do you need faith? It's critical. In fact, there's no being a Christian without it. There's no being acceptable in before God without coming to Him by faith. And so she didn't get faith, what place faith had in relation to God. And look at the end of verse 4. To everyone who believes, law righteousness is replaced by faith righteousness. And what Paul basically says is, Israel, you sought righteousness, but you sought it the wrong way. And Israel was on a quest. Your quest, Paul says, was about you, not about crying out for God to show mercy. Because if you did that, you would find out he did bring that very righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ, his life and his cross. He brought it for you. So basically, Paul says, faith is the issue. Now, how's he going to prove that? Well, look at verse 5. Let's start with some logic here. Three ways. First, show them the necessity for faith. Paul, Paul has to show them that they need faith. How's he going to do that? By quoting Leviticus 18.5. Why does he do that? Because he knows these people respect and honor, so to speak, Moses. You know, they talk a lot about Moses. So he says, well, what Moses say? What's Leviticus 18.5 say? It says basically you have to be perfect. Basically, Leviticus 18.5 says, if, if law abiding is your system, then you need to cover all of it. You need to obey all of it. That's the standard, to be perfect. You have to go all the way, Israel. And so Paul tells Israel, because of your constant failures... Guess what? You need another system, don't you? And you know that God provided it. What was it? Faith. And so we need this way of salvation because we're not perfect, don't we? We need this system of faith because we're not perfect. Give us something else, Lord, because if this is all there is to it, and I see that I'm a constant failure, I'm, I'm going to hell. I think that there's still some here that don't believe that that really is the truth. That it just takes one, one, to send you to hell. Just one sin. And that God's system of acceptance is only perfection. Matthew 5.48, you have to be perfect. 
So he says, he, he establishes the need, but he does the second thing here. I mean, how do we know what faith is like, Paul? Well, again, he, he, he quotes Moses. And, and what he does is he quotes Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14. Look at that there in Romans 10, 6. Paul says, Moses wrote about righteousness by faith and grace. He gave us the nucleus of faith. That's the second point. What's Moses say? Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? And then verse 7, who will descend into the abyss, into the deep, that is, Who's saying that in their hearts? Israel and all unbelievers. Now the main point is this. You, you don't have to go... And that's kind of, a, kind of a complex looking two verses, but it's really not that difficult when you look at the context of Deuteronomy 30. Here's what he's saying, and I went over this last week, so I'm not going to get over the bulk of it. If, if you want a, more of a detailed, listen to last, last week's sermon, but listen to this. Basically he's saying this, here's the main point. Israel, unbeliever, you don't have to go all the way into heaven to get that righteousness. You don't have to do that. And this is a real Jewish way of talking about... Uh, things. I mean, they're always, the Jews are always talking about extremes. And so, to heaven and all the way down into the abyss. And what he's saying is from one end to the other, to the extreme. You don't have to go to the other extreme. You couldn't do it. You don't have to go all the way, not only to heaven, but all the way into the grave. You would never come back with it, with righteousness. Nobody ever has, have they? And so listen, what Paul was basically telling them through Moses was this. Salvation, righteousness, is not something that's way, 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 way out there. It's not. Right? This should get you excited. It's not something that's, it's not impossible. You hear those words that... When we say, Leviticus 18.5, you must be perfect. You hear that and you say, flat out impossible. Not the Jew, not Israel. I'll work for it. I'll go way up in the heaven and way down there. He says, don't say that. Stop saying that in your heart. That's the wrong system. Get that out of your mind. Get that out of your heart. Stop speaking to yourself that way. It's not some sort of impossible journey. And I tell you what, every year around Easter... I'm reminded of just how much people really believe this. And I grew up Catholic, so I, under, I understand this. And as Catholics, uh, I remember when I, when I was one that every year, you know, you'd have to give up something for Lent, right around Easter time. And it's this big rigmarole deal, and you know, you got to, it's like the sacrifice, take something away from you that you love. And you do that every week. Or every, or every day, and then in particular, on a particular day, you, you weren't allowed to eat, like, meat or something like that. Well, that was a tough one for me. I really enjoyed eating meat. So, man, all these people eating burgers, and I'm eating fish, you know? But, you know, you look at all that stuff. You know, it's just, just work. It's just a human effort. You're just, it's a... It's a, it's a thing to try to gain God's favor, to try to gain God's acceptance, to try to, get, to, to try to have God give you one of these. Not bad, right? Is that what this is saying? He's, Paul is saying, don't say that in your heart. Don't do that. That's not righteousness, Paul says. That's not it. Righteousness is not going on your knees over shards of glass. And, and righteousness is not, you know, making the trek like lemmings, you know, way out there. You know, little lemmings, they fall over the little, they do that every, every year, a little, little cliff, you know. It's not that. It's not this trek and this journey. You know why it's not? You never make it. And this is grace. This is grace, brothers and sisters. This is God saying, you don't have to do it. Why? Because Jesus did it for you. He did it for you. 
say, well, where is it then? Well, if, I, if, I, if I don't have to go way here and way over there, where is it, Paul? What's verse 8 say? It's in your what? Mouth. And it's in your what? Heart. It's right here. It's right here. What's Paul mean? How did he get so close? Again, because Jesus Christ has already done the work. That's the point. And when you have this kind of attitude, like, you know, you're going to make some journey to the ends of the earth to get righteousness, what you're basically doing is, look at verse 6, trying to big, bring Christ down, it says. And then verse 7, trying to bring Christ up. And watch this. Down from heaven, up from the grave. In other words, you're saying that his incarnation and his resurrection was not effective. It didn't work. You realize he has already come down from heaven and he has already risen from the grave. In doing that, he purchased our righteousness. You're basically saying that when you do all these works, that uh, incarnation, resurrection, not a big deal. Who really needs it anyway? Waste of time. That's what you're saying. Paul's point is clear. You get that righteousness because Jesus Christ wanted it for you. See? It's good stuff. He got it for you. That's what faith is attached to. That's the reason why Jesus could save you. Have faith like faith of a mustard seed. You could tell that mountain up into the waters. You ever see that and go, why does he even say that? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Why even say that? Like, I'm going to go around. Why would I have a need to lift up a mountain and throw it into water? Don't miss the point. He's trying to say getting righteousness is impossible. You have to have faith. In whom? That's coming up here. Faith in Christ, right? Now how do I make it mine? How do, how do I make Christ mine? How can he be my righteousness? Will you notice the end of verse 8? The word of faith which we are preaching. What's that? That's the gospel. The message about how you could get an acceptable righteousness before God. How do you get it? How do you have faith? How do you have saving faith? Well, he explains what the word of faith is and how you get it. And that's our third point, the navigation of faith. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at that. Now, how does a person, how does this work? I think, I think John MacArthur gives a great summary up to, up to this point that I, I, I thought it would be helpful for you to have. Listen to this. He says, The righteousness that comes to men is a righteousness that's very high because it must meet the infinite standard of the holiness of God. Now that's verses 1 through 3, right? It's a righteousness that we can't gain on our own and so Christ provides it for us. That's verse 4, isn't it? And it is appropriated to us by faith, by believing, not by pursuing it, not by trying to ascend to heaven or descend into the depths, but by receiving it. Now, now that we're at that place, how do you do that? How do you receive it? Paul gives three points, and each one is crucial. Listen, or there's no righteousness. Now it's interesting too, I want to I help you understand the, the outline here and where it comes from in the text. There are three points here, and each point has a pair. Okay? There's a pair for each point to help him communicate exactly how you receive Christ. Exactly what saving faith looks like. Okay? So follow along here. Each point, for example, the first one uh, is confess and believe. The second pair is lordship and resurrection. And the third pair is righteousness and salvation. And you're going to see all of this unveiled for you here, laid out for you here in a moment. So let's work this through here. Verses 9 and 10. How does faith work? Number one, it has to be a genuine commitment. 
a genuine commitment. He says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, right? Now how does a person get saved, truly become a Christian? These two words, confess and believe. These two words are the very important words, beloved. And I think they're very misunderstood words in the church. And the belief and the confession is tied to Christ. It's in Christ. It's to Christ. It's, it's allegiance to Him. Now look at verse 9 and then 10. And I'll show you something that you, you, you might have wondered. Now notice in, in verse 9. Confess, he says. And then what does he say? Believe. But take a look at verse 10. You see how he reverses it? Believe and then confess. He say, well, wait a minute. Why does he do that? Maybe in the first verse it's, it's that way because, you know, it's, it's, he's kind of just saying that uh, you need to start with confessing and then believe and then you get to the point where you believe it and then you start confessing and it's all this one big circle. No. That's not what he's saying. That's not why he did that. He said, well, what's the order? Which one is right? Well, obviously you believe first and then confession comes after the belief. So it's the internal and then it becomes external. You say, well, why did he reverse that then? Real simple, easy explanation. He, all he's doing, he's in, in, in verses 6, 7, and 8, he's quoted Deuteronomy 30. And in particular, verse 14 of Deuteronomy 30, he quotes in Romans 10, 8. And in Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, Moses puts the order mouth and then heart. So he goes with confession and belief in verse 9 and then he turns it around to belief and then confession in verse 10 to let us know that is how that's the right order that's how it works okay so all he's doing is just, just trying to explain Deuteronomy 30 and then he gives a statement in verse 10 okay and I gotta say that either way though both words are very important aren't they now let's start with belief first What's Paul mean? First of all, would you notice that it's personal? He says in verse 9, what does he say? Believe in your what? In your heart. Now, now it's, it's personal. It's, this is what we mean a lot of times when we say personal relationship with Christ. It's personality. It's in your heart. It's something that's not just uh, a, an outside thing. It's not just do these things. It's an in-your-heart type of thing. You mean it. It's something that you mean. Now, I think we get troubled. We, we get in trouble here because a lot of times when we, when we hear heart, what do we think of? Valentine's Day, right? I mean, we think emotions. We think, you know, flowers and, you know, bliss and all that kind of stuff. We think passion. But the Jews didn't think like that. When they said heart, what they meant was... The whole person. Intellect, emotion, and will. That's what they thought of. Those three things. It's like Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. From it flows all of your life. Your heart is, a, is basically your whole life. See? All that you are is because of your heart, your person. It's who you are. Part of the problem, though, is with this word believe. So you have this word heart, it's personal. But you have this word believe. You know, today in the church, the word basically means nod your head. That that's what people think that believe means. Alright, uh, here's ten pieces of information. Blip, 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 blip. Make sense to you? Yeah, sort of. Do you believe it? Yeah, I believe it. That's believed to many today, but that's not, that's not the Bible's definition of believe. Nod your head to some information. You do a study through, you, you do a study of something and you just kind of go, nod your head. Is that good? Yep. Can I go out and play? Yeah, that's how the kids do it, you know, right? Is that what you want me to believe? Is that what you want me to, okay, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, bye-bye. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
do study, the, for example, the Gospel of John, you'd see that Jesus does not have that kind of definition of believe. In fact, when the Reformation happened in the 1500s, the church wanted to be clear and they wanted to be separate from Catholic teaching and so the church spelled out exactly what they meant, what believe meant. Three parts to the belief. First you had assent. And what that was is a mental assent. You had to have this. You had to have your mind wrapped around truth. You have to have your mind wrapped around, do you believe this? Do you understand this? Yes, okay. Alright, let's take it then to the next step. Has it moved you? The affections. So belief has to have information, but there has to be some affection to it. There has to be a kind of a, you know, in your heart, you're feeling it, you know, there, there's that. Ah, but they didn't stop there. They said there's got to also be this movement of the will. This this, this will that said, I'm going in this direction. And so, real belief wasn't true belief until it got all the way to the will to change the direction of a person's life. You say, where did they get that? From Jesus. Listen to what he said in John 8, and this will help you. Now, earlier in, in chapter 2, uh, you, remember, you remember this in our study in John. It said that many believed in his name, and then in verse 24, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He knew what was in a man. Whoa, they believed, but he said, yeah. In fact, actually, you know what the word is there, entrusted? It's the same word for belief. They believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. In other words, I don't believe that your belief is a true belief. That's what it says in John 2. Jesus knew the difference between saving belief and shallow, unsaving, superficial belief. Uh, just simple head nod. In every chapter, if you read the Gospel of John, every chapter in John really defines belief. Now for the time's sake, we're not going to do that. But listen to what Jesus says in John 8. In particular, verse 24, listen to this. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So Jesus says you must believe in Him to have eternal life. And that raises the issue, doesn't it? Why don't you have spiritual life right now? Because of your what? Your sins. That's what He said. Unless you believe, you're going to die in your sins. So basically what keeps us then from believing and from having that life are sins, right? That's the issue. What must you believe? Well, it's not just faith and faith. Some people, you, say, you know, you talk to them, do you believe? Yes, I have faith. In what? Well, I just believe. I just have faith. And others will say they believe in God. And they'll just, and even others will say, just believe in something. Be true to your religion. Listen, beloved, it's belief in Christ. What does he say? It says, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, unless you believe that Jesus is he, who? The one. What one? The one. All that matters. The end of everything. The sum of everything. Unless you believe that Jesus is the climax, the point, the basic thing of the, 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 the key to everything. Unless you believe that, you're going to die in your sins. Unless Jesus Christ is central to you in your life and everything that, is, that's, that you believe goes through Him, then you don't have that proper belief. But listen, even that's not enough. You see, you're scaring me. You're taking me deeper than that? Yeah. Yeah, I have to. Jesus did. Verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Wonderful! They believed in him. He said the words. He said, you'll die in your sins if you don't believe in me. Many came to believe in him. How wonderful. New converts, right? We need to get them to sign a card. 
And so we can send them a little letter that says, Welcome to the family. Wonderful. You're, you're in. I mean, he preached, they believed, great night, right? Look at verse, listen to verse 30, 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him. Stop right there. We already established Jesus knows our hearts, right? He sees right through them. He's not satisfied with lip service. He wants your heart. He wants all of it. And so we keep going in verse 31. And here's what Jesus said to the ones who believed in him. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you continue in my word, you're the real deal. If you don't, you're not. It's that simple. You say, whoa, is Jesus saying that a person can earn their way to heaven? No, he's saying continuing to obey him is the test. It's the proving ground. It's the sign that you really have the real stuff on the inside. And what he's saying is it's not enough to believe in him because he heals people. Because he's a you know, good teacher. You have to keep believing all he said. And your life has to depend on all that he says. Is that how you live your life? Have you lived your life even today that way? That it depends on everything that Jesus says? And the reason why you live that way is because He is your life. See, why did He say that? Listen, because He's going to die on a cross. And the question is, will they continue believing in Him then? You know how many followed Him right after His death? One hundred twenty people. You say, well, that's a lot of people. That's a good-sized church. Not when thousands upon thousands claim to believe in Him. 120, that's it? It said the whole multitude came out just the week before that shouting out, Hosanna! Jesus is great! They were saying just the week before. Now, 120 people, that's it. What happened? They didn't really believe. And you know, Jesus can recognize genuine commitment to Him. That's what defines saving faith, beloved. Saving belief. And so it's a belief in your heart. You mean it. It's not shallow believing. It's like James 2, dead faith. It's not like James 2, dead faith. In fact, would you like to know what unsaving faith looks like? What it actually is? James 2.19 tells us, verse 17, faith, if it, if it has not, works is dead, he says, being by itself. In other words, you can't just mouth the words and think that you've got the real stuff. And then verse 19, listen to this. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they what? Shudder, they tremble, right? Now that's demon faith. Now watch this. Do you have real belief? Or is your belief demon belief? Demon faith? How do you recognize demon faith? What's demon faith look like? I'm telling you, I'm about ready to share some stuff with you that, that there are many, most people don't even have faith that's good enough to be demon faith. Listen to this. First, demon faith, this is what demon faith is like. First, they have good theology. They have right teaching. Notice, they believe God is one. Do you know that that's the most central truth in all of the Old Testament? Deuteronomy 6.4? It is the central truth. You know why? Because that truth basically says that there are no other gods, that God is supreme, that God is the only one, God is the sovereign. They have a high view of the sovereignty of God. Super high view of it. They know that there aren't any other gods. They know that God is sovereign. They know He rules all and that all history and life turns on His commands. They believe that. They don't struggle with free will and choice. They don't struggle with that. They believe God is sovereign. Secondly, they're afraid of judgment. Demon faith fears judgment. 
Well, that sounds somewhat impressive, doesn't it? Man, they believe in the sovereignty of God and they fear God's judgment. But they also believe in coming judgment. I mean, that's more than most today who laugh at the thought of hell, who scoff at any thought of eternal judgment. They know it and they're afraid of it. Head knowledge is not enough. Emotional responses are not enough. Esau sought salvation with many tears and he was rejected. Why? Because he didn't come with anything more than demon faith. And what we're learning then is that many people believe the truth but are not saved. And I mean those people in Matthew 7, they call Jesus what? Lord, Lord. They knew who he was. They called him by the right name and even did lots of stuff supposedly in his name, but they were not saved. And you can have people terrified of hell. You can have people understand that sin is bad, that they understand they need forgiveness, that they understand that Jesus is the only way. They might even feel bad about their sins and they still have nothing more than demon faith. You say, all right, so how do you get saved? Well, one more word before we can move on to the next point. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, confess. You confess with your mouth. Fascinating word. Homologeo. Uh, homa, or the word homo, means the same. To be the same. Lageo means words or speech. And so basically it means to say the same thing. To agree with, with, uh, with the words. Whose words? God's words. You say, why is that so important? Because salvation is not so much about your decision as it is who you agree with. And it's an agreement from the heart. Clearly it's a call to agree with God. Now listen. Not just who, but what. What are you agreeing with God about? It's, it's where you agree with God about all He says about you and all He says about His Son and you agree and your life follows as a result. In fact, it says confess with your mouth. That's a commitment, isn't it? And what you believe in your heart comes out of your mouth. Second Corinthians 4, which is a quote of Psalm 116, I believed, therefore I spoke. It's talking about conviction. True conviction makes you speak out. You agree with God about your condition and, and who the Savior is. And so secondly, second point here this morning, saving faith has to do with the right criteria or the right content, you could say. Here's the content of, content of what a person must believe. The Lordship of Christ and the Resurrection of Christ. His Lordship and the Resurrection. Let's start with the Resurrection. And then I'll show you why his lordship is critical. Will you notice that there are only these two things? Some of you uh, might be wondering, wait a minute. I mean, what about the other stuff? I mean, where's election and where's his death? He doesn't even talk about his death here. Resurrection and lordship? That's all you have to believe? Well, why the resurrection of Christ? Well, in order for there to be a resurrection, there has to be a what? Death. See, it's all rolled into that, isn't it? The resurrection then is the proof of all that Jesus said about his death. He came to be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He came to give us life. And he can't do that if he's still what? Dead. Romans 1.4 who was declared the Son of God with power by His resurrection. The resurrection is God's statement that Jesus Christ is exactly who, he's, who He claimed to be. This happened according to the spirit of holiness. It's a declaration by God that Jesus' death actually paid for sins, can actually forgive sins. So many passages, uh, I'm going to skip some here but Romans 4.24 As those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification 
if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, there's no justification. Sin killed Jesus. In essence, God did, but he did it because he took on sin. And so when it says here in Romans 10, 9, that, the, that God raised him up, what we see here is that the Father raised him to prove it was the Father that crushed him, so then when the Father raises him, it clearly is a statement proving that Jesus conquered what? Sin. You know, we need him to do that, don't we? And I tell you, you go through all of Acts, and what you see in all of Acts is over and over and over again, them preaching the resurrection. It was the most important point of, of their gospel message. How about you? It's the primary message, Acts 13. Here was the crescendo of Paul's sermon, verse 30. But God raised him from the dead, verse 37. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, therefore, on the basis of his resurrection, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Because God raised him, we can be freed. Sound familiar to what Paul said in Romans 10, 4, the end of the law for righteousness? See? Peter preached it too. Acts 2. Take a look at it. He preached the resurrection of Christ. He did it again in Acts 3. Paul came to Athens and said this in, in uh, Acts 17.30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. See, it's the proof. Jesus' death really did provide power to take away our sins. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How did he do this? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Read 1 Corinthians 15. It's all about Paul correcting the resurrection, uh, their, their understanding of the resurrection. And he connected that resurrection to the gospel. You know, beloved, without it there is no gospel. We, the reason why we speak of the death of Christ is so much, and we've we got to get to the resurrection so you can see we really can be freed from sin. In Philippians 2, where it says, God highly exalted Jesus and made him the focus of all worship and glory, he raised Jesus for that glory. Well, you have to believe that. The resurrection is key. Why? John MacArthur is insightful into this when he says, in essence, what you're saying is that you believe that this is the incarnate God who came into the world, God in human flesh, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, went into the grave, and conquered death, came out the other side, having purchased salvation for us, is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, someday will come as the Father's appointed judge and king to judge men and to rule the world forever. That is all bound up in the resurrection. So when he says that, he's saying something massive. You must believe and confess that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the first part. Notice what else believing and confessing entailed. That Jesus is Lord. Lordship of Christ. What's that mean? Well, let's start with the fact that it means that Jesus is God. He's Lord. Later on in verse 13 of, of Romans 10, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's, that's a quote from Joel 2 where he used the word Lord to mean Jehovah. And so he tells us Jehovah. He Jehovah. You know, these people as Jehovah's Witnesses that come around knocking on the door, you know. Wow, well, I'd like to tell you about this. By the way, can I just stop? Can I just end this conversation really quickly? Jesus is Jehovah. Okay? I'm a witness of Jesus Christ who is Jehovah. See? Most common way, though, people understood this word, though, was not just that Jesus is God, and it means that, but it means more. Kurios. It means master, ruler, sovereign, king, 
boss, if you will. We believe in the resurrection of Christ. We also believe in the lordship of Jesus. We confess it. See the issue? Will you acknowledge Jesus as your sovereign king, as your ruler? We mentioned the rich young ruler a lot lately, but if you go back to him, you know, he said this, I want eternal life. Jesus said, keep the commandments. The man said, I have. Jesus said, uh, okay, well, you're missing one more thing. Give away everything and then come and follow me. And the man left sad. Why? Listen. Because he refused to part with this world. He refused to bow his knee to the Lordship of Christ. He was willing to bow his knee to Jesus if Jesus was just some kind of good teacher. Nice guy. But when Jesus said, give up your life and follow me as your Lord, he said, no. Can't part with my life. You're asking way too much of me. And he left sad. And it was because of the Lordship of Christ. Go back to what we said about confess. It means to agree with, to say the same things as. What are we to confess? Jesus as what? Lord. Who are we agreeing with? God. You say, did God, did God the Father ever say Jesus is Lord? Matthew 3 Jesus' baptism, verse 17, And behold, a voice came out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You know, God never said that about anyone. But Jesus. And then in chapter 17, verse 5, Transfiguration, while he was still speaking, and Peter you know, was wanting to make you know, three tabernacles for all these guys. Oh, Peter. We could all be like Peter, right? I, I, I guess maybe that's why I relate with him so much. Oh, that's me. I would have said something goofier than that, you know. Bright cloud, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to this. Listen to him, he said. A few things here. First, again, God never said that about anyone. And that's what you need to be saved, by the way, is to have God say that about you. I am well pleased with you. You know, until God says that about you, you can't be saved. Do you realize that salvation is about God's pleasure? So you have to have Christ to be saved because God is well pleased with Him. So look, I want Him. If that's, if that's what I need to be saved is God's pleasure, then I need the one whom God is pleased with. See? But notice the other thing. God the Father said this about Jesus Christ. Listen to Him. In other words, He is it. He is the boss. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign one. You must bow to his lordship. In fact, Jesus himself put his lordship out to the religious leaders of Israel and it stumped them when he said in Matthew 22, remember that? Here's the question, verse 42 from Jesus. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What did they say? Oh, well, he's the son of David. So here's Jesus, verse 43. Well, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll put your enemies beneath your feet. What's he wanting them to understand? The Lordship of Christ. Oh, there are so many places. Just write these down. Romans 14, 9. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. And 14, 9. To this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is a curse and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And he's not talking about mouthing words. The Holy Spirit leads a true believer to confess Jesus as the Lord of his life. Or how about our study in Ephesians this last week, verse 20, which he, God, brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, there it is, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Why'd you seat him, God? Why'd you seat him there, God the Father? Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that's named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, Jesus is Lord, right? That's what he's saying. 
Philippians 2, God made him Lord that every knee should bow down to him. Jesus is the sovereign power, has sovereign control of all things, and salvation that is believing that. It is coming to him for that. It is surrendering to him, to, to that as in your life. John MacArthur says the point is that the true heart that really believes understands the fullness of who Christ is and willingly submits to his authority. And that leads to the final point here. Number three, it has to be a real change. It has to radiate in a real change in both position and practice. Look at what Paul says here. That if you confess with your mouth, here's the third pair. Jesus is Lord, I believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you what? You will be what? Saved. Guarantee it will happen. Now, the, the, this is the results of believing. Something is going to happen. What's going to happen? You will be saved. You will be saved. Position and practice will change. How do you know the person's saved? Look for the results. What are those results? Look at this pair here, verse 10. For with the heart man believes, notice, resulting in what? What's the first result? Righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, again, what's the, what's the other result? Salvation. Now real quickly, these are two sides of the same coin. I'm going to see if I can, in just like literally one minute, explain this to you. Tremendous thought to leave on here. One is negative and one is positive. Here's how God saves. Here's the result of it. Righteousness. Righteousness is talking about holiness. God's holiness. When a person believes in Christ, the way we learned already, and confesses to the Lordship of Christ in his life, God says, He will declare that person righteous. It's, the, it's imputed righteousness that we've already learned. It's Philippians 3. To be covered with the righteousness of Christ like a robe. Total forgiveness. Perfect righteousness. That's how God sees you. Now watch the negative thing. That's righteousness. Results in that. Negatively. Salvation. You say, why is that negative? Righteousness deals with what you get. Salvation deals with what? What you don't get. Watch this. You're saved from something. What are you saved from? God's what? Wrath. God's wrath. You've been delivered from that. You've been snatched out of hell's fire. Again, John MacArthur says it well. Righteousness has to do with what we become. Salvation has to do with what we don't become. Righteousness has to do with what we receive. Salvation has to do with what we don't receive. Punishment. Righteousness has to do with entering into blessedness. Salvation has to do with escaping cursedness. Two great terms describing two sides of God's saving work. That's it, beloved. Can you see it? Do you understand now what it is to have saving faith? It's the confession. It's the belief. Understanding what that is in Christ. It's the content of Jesus is Lord, the Lordship of Christ, and the resurrection. And it is this very thing here, righteousness, where the life has changed. And now you are going in the direction of righteousness because you've been clothed with righteousness. And you've been saved from His wrath. Now let's, let me bring this to a conclusion here. I want to end with words from an amazing preacher of the Lordship of Christ, A.W. Tozer. Tozer says, Years ago, no one would ever dare to rise in a meeting and say, I am a Christian if he had not surrendered his whole being to God and had taken Jesus Christ as his Lord as well as his Savior and had brought himself under obedience to the will of the Lord. It was only then that he could say, I am saved. Today, by the way, his today, he, he died in 1962, so just so you understand this. Today... We let them say they are saved no matter how imperfect and incomplete the transaction with the proviso that the deeper Christian life can be tacked on at some time in the future. 
Can it be that we really think that we do not owe Jesus Christ our obedience? End quote. Again, if you're hearing that and saying, so you obey and that's how you get saved? No. What he's saying is true salvation results in what? Righteousness. Obedience. The person that says, Lord, I want to obey you. You have all of me. Or you have none of me, Christ says. E.W. Tozer ends with these words. That is bad teaching, brethren. And the very last thing I want to leave off is with John 3.16. John 3.16 is the sum of everything we just studied. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. There's the negative. Salvation from perishing. Perishing from the wrath of God. But have eternal life. There's the positive. The very righteousness of Christ. What we get when we come to Christ His way. Blessed be the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank You for Your Word and purity of it and how it cuts to the heart and, and Lord if there are true believers here this morning I know that there was in a sense a real offense and at the same time an encouragement if there are unbelievers here this morning they were offended I know they were And Lord, it could be that you're using that offense to really do work in their hearts, to bring them to you and save them. And I pray you would do this, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your word. Give us a rich understanding of it, Lord. We understand, Father, that we are unworthy. We understand that you provided this righteousness and that this confession of Jesus as Lord is not some type of just mouthing words, but it really is the confession of our life. We thank you for sending Christ that he is our righteousness and he paid for it and purchased it for us. And we want to worship you now as a result. We love you and praise you. We pray this in the name of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.